0: coming back and joining me on our first show of 2017 here on Next on the Tee. We are brought to you today by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort, the Bobby Jones Company, Frogger Golf, and our friends at the Orange Whip Company as well, makers of the Orange Whip Trainer. And folks, if you haven't checked out the Orange Whip yet and you're looking for a great way to limber up, before you round or improve your club head speed, then you need to go check out the orange whip. Right, pretty cold outside, right? You know, and there's no better way to loosen yourself up and get prepared for your round of golf, or to just to keep your golf swing in tune, and by swinging the Orange Whip. My father, 73 years old, plays five days a week, right? Using the Orange Whip to loosen up before his rounds. It's improving my club head speed. Take a look at what a great training aid that it is, and I wouldn't say it if I wasn't using it, folks. Please, go online to see for yourself at orangewhiptrainer.com. And please also, while you're online, check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Company and their great winter apparel. Go to bobbyjones.com to check out, you know, their great styles and their super soft sweaters and shirts, you know, those those items, those shirts, those sweaters, they're going to keep you both looking good and feeling good, whether you're in the office or out on the golf course. And plus, while you're on their site, you can watch playing lessons from Bobby Jones himself. And folks, many of those lessons still hold true to today. So go to bobbyjones.com to see for yourself how great their apparel is and how great those lessons from Mr. Jones still are. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and this morning I'm excited to start off the new year with you with two really great guests. First up with me today is going to be John Decker. John worked at the Golf Academy at the Grand Cypress Resort for over 20 years. He was also the director of instruction at the New Albany Country Club up in New Albany, Ohio, for nearly 10 years. He's written a wonderful new book titled, Golf Is My Life. So we'll talk about that, and we'll sort of take a walk through John's life when he joins me here in just a few moments. Following John, I'll get a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. I'll get uh, Peter's thoughts, you know, for the 2017 golf season. We'll see what he thinks that we should expect from Tiger Woods this golf season, what we should expect from Jordan Spieth when he makes his return to the Masters in a few months, plus, you know, memories from some of uh, his legendary interviews, particularly a conversation that he had with Gary Player. We'll do that and a whole lot more with Peter when he joins me a little bit later on in this half hour. So we're going to have a lot of fun this morning. There's going to be a lot of really good information, two really great guests. I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next hour or so. And like I mentioned a moment ago, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort, which is an absolutely spectacular place, folks. Their Pete Dye and Donald Ross Design courses were ranked number one and number two in the state of Indiana by Golf Week. It was the site of Uh, the 2015 Senior PGA Championship. They recently hosted the LPGA Legends Championship. Go to FrenchLake.com to see for yourself how great a place it is and to book your stay. And every week here on Next on the T, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women that are serving in every branch of our military who are tuning in around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families are making to protect our freedoms and our liberties. We also want to thank our veterans for all that you and your families have done for us through the years. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life continues to be possible. Folks, let me ask you, if you happen to see a member of our military when you're out and about in your daily lives, wherever you might be, grocery store, airport, restaurant, please stop for a moment and go tell them thank you. Those folks are our true heroes. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the great folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It is such an honor for us to know that our show, Next on the T, is a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. And I also want to continue to remind our veterans out there, please keep checking globalvoiceforveterans.org. What a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information that is specifically geared towards our veterans out there. I'm sure you're going to continue to find it interesting and beneficial to you. That's globalvoiceforveterans.org. I also want to send out a, a quick thank you to our good friends over at Podbean that are making Next on the Tee and our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, regularly featured podcasts on both their website and their mobile app. You can see us featured there on their homepage and also in their sports and recreation section. We appreciate you guys so much for what you're doing to promote our shows. It means a great deal to us. If you happen to be listening to this show as a podcast, we hope you're doing it. On the Podbean app, on their app, you can get instant updates every time we publish a new episode. It's free. It has a lot of great features on it, their site, that is. You know, you can easily discover, listen, and even publish a podcast yourself. Whether you use an Android or an iPhone, Podbean is the app for your podcasting needs. Get it now at the uh, on Google Play and at the Apple iStore as well so you can enjoy, you know, more of the podcasts you love. And we hope two of them are next on the T and Thursday Night Tailgate. Again, Podbean and Podbean.com. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is John Decker. Like I mentioned a moment ago, John is a a golf instructor. He's been the director of golf instruction at the New Albany Country Club up in New Albany, Ohio. He was the uh, head instructor at uh, Grand Cypress Academy of Golf for over 20 years. He's now a public speaker and the author of the book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. And I'm honored to have John with me here and next on the tee this morning. Good morning, John. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining me on the show.
1: Happy New Year to you, Chris, and thank you very much. It's an honor to be on your show. I want to say, send a sh- shout-out to all the men and women around the world who are protecting us, and thank you for, for all your efforts.
0: I appreciate that. And, you know, first of all, John, you know, I want to wish you a happy birthday a few days early, your birthday being
1: next Thursday. I hope <laughs> you
0: have something exciting on tap to celebrate your birthday, a milestone year for you.
1: It is. I'm going to be 50, and I am going to be traveling uh, through Atlanta on my birthday. I'm actually going down there to uh, speak at the Atlanta Country Club, and I'm going to be uh, hitting the Barnes and & Nobles and trying to get my book uh, spread throughout the South. So I'm looking forward to it. Ah,
0: very good. Yeah, very good. Hopefully we we, we get a little better weather for you when you're coming through here. We had a, a big uh, snow and ice event last night and the windchill this morning. Last I looked was eight here in atlanta so uh we got we got we got a lot of ice to to get off the roads for you hopefully everything's nice and clear by the time you come to town my friend
1: i hope it is as well thank you
0: so and and john kind of speaking of your birth if you will you're born in augusta georgia a place obviously beloved by golfers right for the masters tournament and, uh, and augusta yes. national for our listeners here on the armed forces radio network your father was in the army stationed at fort gordon over there both of your parents actually very interesting backgrounds your father played college football at wake forest with uh, brian piccolo your mom was named athlete of the year once upon a time in western uh, north carolina when she was in high school also a miss youth fitness for the state of north carolina talk about your parents
1: well i have wonderful parents uh, god has blessed me with two fantastic parents and and um, they instilled work ethic into me. They taught me um, the difference, obviously, between right and wrong. I was raised in the United Methodist Church, um, and education was very important. Um, I was much more of an athlete, never really uh, wanted to go into writing or reading. I wanted to play sports, but I I am so blessed to have the parents uh, that that have raised me, and and really, um, I think a lot of the um, what you'll read in the book, um, and a lot of the comments I've gotten from people who've read the book, um, is what great parents I do have, and, and uh, that's something that I hope the readers will take from this book.
0: And, and John, you know, as I say, your father w- was in the military. He actually volunteered for the army at a time, you know, in our country's history that that wasn't always, you know, a popular thing to do. Talk about your father's life in the military.
1: Well, he, you know, he played at Wake Forest and he was, um, he was a uh, very, very good running back, um, uh, but he got, he tore his knee up running a punt back against at uh, West Point and they moved him to safety and, and his, uh, the, the chances of him playing in the NFL were not very good. So he was in the ROTC and he volunteered. Um, he, he pretty much knew he was going to get drafted. So he said, I'm just going to go ahead and volunteer and a lot of his friends told him he was crazy to do that but um th- they moved him to um to uh, augusta and he lived there for four months i was i was born there uh for two months so out of my 50 years of life i've spent two months in in uh golf heaven uh is the way i look at it um i think god okay. specifically chose that spot for me to begin my life and um and start me on a writing journey i didn't know it at the time and i never knew it until until about four or five years ago, that I until I actually started writing the book, but uh, uh, he was um, it was a it was a bold move on his part. They ended up t- sending him to Germany, and uh, he never had to go to Vietnam, thank goodness. So, um, but uh, he he proudly served as in the army.
0: And you know, you're talking about your your limited time over in Augusta, but you have some interesting stories. About going to augusta national, one about your father and, and, and his first uh, foray at uh, at augusta national and one about your your first visit there back in in nineteen eighty do you mind sharing those stories
1: absolutely um my my mother was actually pregnant with me, and my father he had he had never played golf he grew up in a very humble environment and he uh, my father uh, had taken at Wake Forest had taken golf in physical education class. So he was just hooked on the game. And Arnold Palmer, of course, being from Wake Forest, Arnold Palmer was his hero. And so when he got to Augusta, he's like, I'm going to go see this golf course named Augusta national. So he, and his, his brand new, uh, 67 Falcon drove right through the gate and did not even stop. Uh, the security guards, you know, they're checking and he drove right through the gate was going to just drive up Magnolia lane and, and uh, immediately, they started blowing whistles. Dad said that all these people started jumping out of the bushes and coming around and uh, basically stopped, you know, stopped him. And, and, and Dad said, well, I just want to go to the pro shop. He thought he could just buy a hat or something like that. And they and the guy kept saying, back that thing out of here, buddy. And he said, well, he said, I just want to go to the pro shop. And he said, back that thing out of here, buddy. So basically, um, I, I've, I've always said I was the first fetus to ever get kicked out of uh, Augusta National. So... Hopefully one day I'll get a chance to play there. (laughs) But uh, but later on in 1980, I went uh, with my brother, Michael. Uh, My hero was Jack Nicklaus. And um, so we went to, uh, my Uncle Louie took us to Augusta National and, and for the practice round. And we drove there and, and the whole time I was so excited to see Jack Nicklaus and, um, it was just a wonderful experience. I mean, I truly, truly um, fell in love with professional golf. And my dream to be a PGA Tour player started when I walked on this hallowed ground. My first autograph was from Bill Kratzer, who actually took uh, a class from my Uncle Louie, who taught at the University of Georgia, ta- taught economics there. And uh, Bill Kratzer was was one of his students. And he came over to my uncle and gave us an autograph, my brother and I, Michael, And it was just a, it was one of those moments that you just always remember. Now, when I see kids on, on television getting autographs from tour players, I know exactly what those kids are thinking, what those kids are dreaming and believing. And I think it's important for the tour players to understand that we all have dreams. And, and by signing an autograph and, and giving a kid, uh, you know, that extra moment, who knows where it leads. And it's led me to a life of, of teaching the game that I love and now writing a book.
0: And, John, it's, it's interesting that, you know, obviously with your father being a Wake Forest alum, it, it certainly makes sense that, you know, Arnold Palmer would be his hero. You know, you mentioned, you know, growing up being a, a Jack Nicholas fan. So, obviously, the rivalry back, right, between the two of those guys throughout exactly. the of their career. Like, house divided. How did that happen? How did, how did your father, you know, idolize Arnold Palmer? But you and I, I believe I read you and your brother were both Jack Nicholas fans.
1: Well, my father, you know, I think a lot of times people gravitate to players that fit their personality. And Arnold Palmer was an aggressive player. My dad is a, an aggressive player. I mean, I, I tell, you know, he, uh, he, he came, he would come down to Florida to play golf uh, with me down there at Grand Cypress, and I'd say, Dad, you know, um, you, you may want to lay up here, and he said, he would always say, John, I didn't come to Florida to lay up. So he would, he would always try to pull <laughs> off the shot, and he'd say, you know, well, Arnold Palmer would try to hit the shot, and I'd say, Dad, but you're not Arnold Palmer. So we've always had that little rivalry going on, but I just, I, you know, I have, I have six major, six uh, green jackets on my side to four. So I think that's uh, (laughs) trumped him a little bit there, but, but uh, Arnold Palmer is, is certainly, um, you know, I've, I've had the, I've had the opportunity in my lifetime. There's a story in the book about meeting him, uh, Tiger Woods, other tour players uh, that I've been able to be around in my 20 year career at Grand Cypress and, and past that. And I really think that the readers are going to enjoy these stories because they tie into my faith, they tie into the tour players, and they tie into my life experiences. And, and they're all each chapter is, is special, and I really hope the readers will, will enjoy them.
0: And John, you wrote about a trip that your family made for the dedication of the Brian Piccolo, Arnold Palmer Sports Dormitories at Wake Forest. You know, at the time, you know, that was, you know, your, op- your dad's opportunity to, to meet Mr. Palmer, you and your family's opportunity to meet Mr. Palmer. Can you share that story?
1: I love that story. We were, my dad, we had, a, uh, I think, a 76 van. You know, you just imagine this van loaded with the entire family, my brothers, I had two brothers, My grandparents, my mom and dad, and we are just all excited. We're driving from Black Mountain to Winston-Salem, which is a two-hour drive. And as we're driving um, up the hill to, to park the car, to our right is Jesse Haddock, the famed golf coach from Lake Forest, and Arnold Palmer walking down the sidewalk. And I'm not exaggerating. My father yelled, there's Arnold Palmer, as loud as you could, slammed on the brakes. My mom said, Sam, what in the world are you doing? puts the car in park, gets out of the car, cars are behind us, completely comes to a stop, runs around, opens the sliding door up from the van, and our family piled out of that that van um, as fast, like kids coming down the steps on Christmas morning. And I, I've always thought, Arnold Palmer had this look on his face, and he was laughing and I honestly think for a moment that he he thought that he was get, that terrorists were were gonna kidnap him or something because <laughs> of the way we piled out of that van and and we stood there and and I and I was so embarrassed I was red and my, and I'm sitting there I'm like 14 or 15 and I'm shaking Arnold Palmer's hand and he's just squeezing my hand and he looked at me and gave me a wink and he it, it was his way of letting me know I think this is hilarious so uh, but my father <laughs> his his enthusiasm uh for Arnold Palmer um uh, stood out that day.
0: And John Bill Steins, who was the director of golf at Scioto Country Club, Jack Nicklaus's home golf course was very influential in uh, in your golf life. Talk about the influence that he had on you.
1: Bill Steins is is a is a great man and I, I got the chance to meet him when I went to Wake Forest Golf Camp. Um, I went down there and he was one of the, he was playing at Wake Forest. He was obviously in school and, and I was an insecure teenager, skinny, not, didn't really have a good golf swing, but I wanted it so bad. And Bill Steins took a lot of extra time with me. I I begged my family to stay another week. They allowed me to stay another week. And, and Bill, um, just, we, we developed a really great friendship. Uh, Bill's now at Sciota when I, when I actually was interviewing, uh, for the job at New Albany, Bill actually gave me a reference which went a long way in me getting that job, and I'll always be grateful for that but bill is a is a fantastic person as well and um you know God has blessed me with many people in my life who who have influenced my my personal life but also my career and I would consider Bill Steins as one of those people that's really helped me in my career, helped me to grow and um and someone that I lean on, I really respect his advice and uh, he did a phenomenal job with the, the senior open this year at Scioto. And um, I think that, um, you know, he's just he is so well respected in in our field, um, not just in Ohio and not just in and just in our family, but throughout the the PJ of America.
0: And, you know, to that point, John, you know, you, you've talked about, you know, growing up as a as a fan of Mr. Nicholas having, you know, having Bill Stein and, you know, the folks over at Scioto Country Club, you know, be an influential piece of your life. You sort of, you know, cross paths, if you will, with, with Mr. Nicholas several times and, you know, the piece, of, you know, Augusta National, all these things in and around his life. You ever get a chance to meet him and talk to him?
1: I, I've, i you know, it, it was funny because when I was in the pro shop at New Albany, Jack, Jack Nicholas came in with his was just an entourage of people they wanted to see cuz he he built uh he designed the New Albany Country Club's golf course which is about 20 25 minutes from from uh from uh Muirfield and um he walked in the pro shop and I literally and th- keep in mind this is about 5 years ago I literally was tongue tied I could not say a word I I I just had this panic uh uh feeling because I was just so nervous to be around him because Um, I used to sit there and watch Jack Nicklaus's uh, 86 Masters tape. I think I've watched that a hundred times and just dreaming about playing Augusta, dreaming about um, just my idol and watching him, him play the game and, and how he, he did play the game. He played it first with his mind and then he had phenomenal uh, golf swing, had phenomenal uh, strength and athletic ability. He had the total package and he's, in my opinion, until someone gets uh more than 18 majors uh he's number one on my list so but um, um yeah. you know it's just i it, it, I didn't I have not I have not gotten a chance to uh to actually talk to him face to face and that would be a dream
0: John you, you would ultimately choose to attend East Carolina I'm curious you know with your father being a Wake Forest alum you, know, you I think you had some other schools Potentially interested in you, like at North Carolina. Why did he, why East Carolina?
1: Well, um, you know, when I was uh, in high school, I, my senior year, I won uh, the Western North Carolina sectional tournament, which was a big deal for me. I was an I was a, a hardworking kid, uh, but I was an overachiever. I was not the kid that everyone looked at and goes, "This guy's, you know, a world beater." And I had some smaller schools in the western part of the state, and also down at Methodist College, and they were they were sending me stuff every day and. And and East Carolina had contacted me. And the only way I was going to play at Carolina was I was was going to have to walk on. Uh, Jesse Haddock, uh, who he sent me a letter. And, in fact, I put the copy of the letter in my book. Um, Jesse sent me a a letter congratulating me. But I wasn't good enough to play. I mean, me playing at at Wake Forest, I just wasn't at that that caliber. And I I did not do well my senior year in the state tournament. Um, And so – I knew that playing at Carolina would, have, would be a long shot at best. East Carolina had a much better opportunity. And I believe if you're going to go to college and you want to play golf, you need to go somewhere where you're going to play or you can play. And I had a chance to play. I did not make the team. And that's a chapter in my book was the most difficult chapter for me to write. Uh, it's called Failure. And it's very difficult to express to the world things that you failed at. Uh, because I held that inside for a long time, but it ultimately was one of the greatest gifts that, that God ever uh, had happen in my life, because by failing and not making the golf team, it drove me to be an instructor. I wanted to improve my swing technique. When I went down to Grand Cypress, I was around Phil Rogers, and I was around Fred Griffin, and I was around the best teaching instructors in the country, in my opinion. And I learned the golf swing. I revamped, I re I totally retooled my golf swing at 25 and I and developed a much better golf swing and played on the mini tours and, and went that route. But teaching is uh, my first love and, and will always be what I'll hang my hat on. And, and um, so it just, uh it's been a, it's been a, a unique journey. Um, and it's funny how, when one door closes, another door will open right up.
0: Mm-hmm. And John in 1992 you wrote about you know you were struggling a bit in your life and in April of that year you went to a golf tournament you followed Payne Stewart and then your life sort of took a turn talk about what changed things for you
1: Well that is my favorite chapter in the book it's called coincidences chapter 10 and uh, Fred Griffin actually wrote the the forward I have forwards for each uh for many of the chapters in the book and Fred Griffin a top 100 teacher and who a man who I really respect and, and a strong Christian, strong instructor, very good eye. Um, I was there, um, and I did I was like no matter what I did in life, it wouldn't work. And I couldn't get my job I could I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career. I was right out of college. And I took the greatest um well, before that I, I went to Harbortown. Uh, some friends gave me um, gave me uh, tickets to, to the tournament. And I hadn't been to a PGA Tour event since I was a little boy. And I went there and immediately saw Payne Stewart. And I always loved Payne Stewart, uh, his golf swing. I loved the way he dressed. I loved everything about the way he, he acted. And I followed him for two days. And after the second day, I went home and I sat in my room and I cried because I knew what I wasn't doing. Wasn't what God wanted me to. I knew God wanted me to go back into golf. He wanted me to pursue a career in golf. And I picked up and I took, I had $500 in my car and that, and just some clothes and a couple of odd dishes and things like that. And I moved from Hilton Head, South Carolina down to Orlando, Florida. And I slept on a floor for three months uh, until I find with no job, nothing. And I got the job at Grand Cypress. And when I was at Grand Cypress, after about a week or so, uh, Fred uh, said he said Payne Stewart's coming in to take some lessons. And I got a chance, an opportunity to see Payne Stewart. And, Payne, you know, Payne was a guy that I was around for years. Uh, he would talk to me very little, but he would talk to me enough to where he knew who I was. And the last time I ever saw him alive, he he pointed at me, he winked. And, um, that was it. And, um, I never saw him again alive. And, and, but he, I believe, uh, you know, you have different people like Bill Steins is someone who structurally put me in Columbus, Ohio. Payne Stewart, he was more of like a spiritual beacon. He guided me back to where he, God used him to guide me to teaching the game of golf. And, and I will, uh, years later, I got an opportunity to, to talk to Payne Stewart's son. And I thanked him. I said, your dad is the reason why I'm teaching golf. So I'll always – that's my favorite story in the book.
0: I'm talking with John Decker, golf instructor and the author of Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. And, John, just a a couple more before we let you go, right? Sure. I have to imagine that you came across – you talk about Payne Stewart, but some other great players, celebrities during your 20 years – at the Grand Cypress who were some of the other people that you had an opportunity to meet and talk about the game of golf with
1: I got to spend three days with Seve Ballesteros I got to watch Paul Azinger take a lesson from Phil Rogers I got to play golf with Bill Murray I got to meet uh, or to to, I got a funny story about Tiger Woods in the book I didn't really specifically talk with him but it's a great story and I'll let the readers read that one you know, th- those were some of the people, but Gail Sayers, I got to spend time with Gail Sayers. One of my coworkers, Gus Holbrook, has been teaching for years. I got a chance to spend spend time with with, with Gail Sayers, and I got to talk about Brian Piccolo and talk about, hey, my dad played football with Brian Piccolo and, and get to hear his perspective uh, about, you know, Brian Piccolo. That was something I'll, I'll always cherish and then um you know the professional athletes when i was at grand cypress whenever the the chicago bulls would play the would play the um, the the orlando magic they would stay at grand cypress and michael jordan would be out there playing all these a, nba players would be walking around the resort um you just say hello to them and just like they were anyone else um you know i got to i got to teach larry brown and pl- do a playing lesson with larry brown the coach uh now for smu um, I got um, I didn't meet him at, at Grand Cypress, but I have a great story about Roy Williams, who used to be a high school coach uh, at my high school. I got to I grew up with Brad Johnson, who played who won the NFL, you know, won the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I also went to high school with Brad Daugherty, who was the number one pick by the 19 in the 1986 draft by um, the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I have had uh, amazing things that have happened in my life. And being able to put them in the form of a book and use them to glorify God, and that's what I've, I've tried to do with this book.
0: So all of that you know kind of leads to you know John, you talk about you know the inspirations throughout your life and the, and the things that you, you know God had a plan for you and, and, and those sorts of things that led you through you know your journey so far in life. So that leads you to this book. What inspired you to actually write the book?
1: I never wanted to write a book until I became a teacher. And when I was teaching, I had these stories that started forming in my mind and I could not stop them. And I thought after 10 years, I told my boss, I told Fred down there, I said, Fred Griffin, I said, Fred, I think God wants me to write a book. I said, I can't stop these stories. They keep piling up in my head and they won't go away. And I had a gust in my head for 20 years. Some of my stories would form in five minutes. One of them's formed in a, sh- in the shower. I've got a great story, you know, I know this armed force network, but, um, Nathan Kars from Nathan B. Kars who died in Afghanistan in the army. I've got a great story in the book about him and, and the relationship I have with his best friend, Corey Luke was, who's the head golf professional at new Albany country club. So it, it when, when these stories started, started, uh, forming in my head, I always thought, well, you know what will happen is I'll have a player who will make it on the tour and I'll be a famous instructor and I'll write my book then. And I had to hit rock bottom. I had to go through a divorce. I had to lose my condominium. I had to lose my house. I had to lose everything. God stripped me down to where I was down at the very bottom. And when you're at the bottom, you can either give up or you can look up. And I chose to look up to God. And that's when I started writing my book. And I'm glad I wrote the book when I was at my bottom because that's when the Holy Spirit would come through me. That's when I could really get into my heart and soul and say, I want to pour my feelings and everything into this book. And I did, and it took me four years. And I'm blessed to have Pete McDaniel, who is my editor. Uh, Pete has been with Golf uh, Digest for 20 years, and he guided me and helped me um, with the book and helped me, you know, show me the ropes because I, I was just such a new writer. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so it's just, it's been an amazing experience. And I now am ready. I'm excited about the, the things that really come natural to me are the marketing and getting out and selling the book and speaking about the book. Those things came, come naturally to me, but writing the book, I was very insecure because I'd never done anything like that. Never dreamt of doing it, but sometimes God will ask ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that's what I feel like he's done with me.
0: So, John, before we let you go, let our listeners know how how can they find the book? How can they follow you, whether it's either online or over social media?
1: Uh, my website is johndeckergolf.com, and I spell that J-O-N Deckergolf.com. You um you can get me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Uh, I'm now in Barnes and Nobles uh, in Asheville, Charlotte, Raleigh, and Burlington, North Carolina. I'll be in Atlanta next week. Hopefully, they'll be in Atlanta as well. And you can go online. You can get me on Barnes & Noble's website and also Amazon's website. And we're waiting for the e-version to be out. That'll be available here in a couple of weeks. And once that gets out, um, the, the national campaign and the press releases are going out. So it's really not been uh, officially done. It's out by Christian Faith Publishing. Um, and, but uh, if you, you want to um, go to uh, JohnDeckerGolf.com, that's a great way to follow me.
0: John, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to be a part of the show. It was great you know, getting the opportunity to spend some time with you. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime.
1: I would love to, Chris, and thank you very much, and Happy New Year to you and to all your listeners.
0: I appreciate that. Happy New Year to you and your family as well. Take care, John. We'll catch up again real soon, my friend.
1: All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: And it's John Decker. Again, the name of the book is Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. And like John said, he spells his name J O N, so it's John Decker. Golf.com is the name of his site. All right, folks, uh, before we get to my next guest, Peter Kessler, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at the Bobby Jones Company, right? Pretty cold outside, right? Game changers. But you can beat the odds with Bobby Jones layers, from quarter-zip pullovers to super soft sweaters. Check out all of their great styles by going to bobbyjones.com. And while you're on their site, folks, click on the equipment link to see the great line of drivers, fairway woods, and hybrids designed by one of the game's most influential equipment designers, Mr. Jesse Ortiz. Jesse, like his father Lou and, and Bobby Jones himself, has a you know, passion for golf and club, uh, club design. Do you remember Jesse's you know, great tri-metal fairway woods from his days at Olimar? Well, now he's putting his creativity and his innovative designs to work creating great golf equipment for the Bobby Jones Company. Check it out online by clicking on the equipment link on bobbyjones.com or going directly there by going to bobbyjonesclubs.com. And if you're looking for some great golf accessories, remember our friends over at Frogger Golf and FroggerGolf.com, what a wonderful array of products they have. I love the Amphibian Towel that one Best New Product at the PGA Merchandise Show back in 2009 and their Catch Latch Technology that easily and securely lets you attach and release, you know, your golf towel, their Amphibian Towel, their, their Brush Pro Club Cleaner, right to and from your golf bag. And speaking of of golf bags they've got such great ones you know i've i'm using one now right you can check them out on you know on on, on their line on their site as well you know froggergolf.com typically those things go for you know 170 dollars well they're taking 100 dollars off right now you can get it for 69 99 like i said i've got one i love all the storage compartments and the catch technology that is built right into their golf bag which is like i say just fantastic so please go online and check it out froggergolf.com We'll get to my next guest, Peter Kessler, and we'll do that on the other side of this station identification.
2: You're listening to Next on the T with Chris
3: Mascaro, heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network.
0: And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. And folks, like I've said every time that Peter has joined me here on the show, no one knows more about the history of golf than Peter does. He's interviewed almost every major golf figure from the 20th and 21st centuries. In the early to mid-1990s, he was the voice of HBO Sports. He moved on to become the primary broadcast talent when the uh, Golf Channel launched back in January of 1995. He's also hosted his own show on SiriusXM's PGA channel. You can stream or download many of the outstanding interviews that Peter has done over the years with, uh, like I say, some of the greatest legends of all time by checking out the Peter Kessler Show on iTunes. If you also love the game of baseball and you're a big fan like I am of the HBO documentary, When It Was a Game, that magical voice narrating the story is Peter Kessler. When you talk about the great interviewers of all time, whether it's you know on TV or on radio, no one has ever done it better than Peter Kessler has done it. Good morning, Peter. Happy New Year, my friend. How are you? Peter, Happy New Year. Are you with us?
3: Happy New Year to you too. I'm with you absolutely, and delighted to be.
0: How are you, my friend? I'm doing
3: okay. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm keeping the ball in play, and uh, my my kids and and wife are good, and uh, and I'm uh, happy to start the new year off with you and see what's going on with you in the show. I just listened to your previous guest, John Decker. That was a pretty fascinating interview. It sounds like a great book. And uh, one never knows what you've got up
0: your sleeve. <laughs> I appreciate that. Peter, I wanted to start off our time this morning getting your thoughts on the wraparound golf season. It's been hard for me to remember that the 2017 season is actually about three months old already. What's What's it like for you? Do you, you like this? Do you like the wraparound style?
3: I don't, I don't even consider it having started yet. It's a complete to me it's a complete nonsense. It's a money grab. You get the worst players playing the worst tournaments on the worst golf courses the worst time of the year against pro football and against basketball. It just doesn't make any sense. It's a pure money grab. That's all that this is about. This has nothing to do with showcasing the product and showcasing its best players. This is like having you know the the worst teams in the NBA having a three month head start on the rest of the season and hoping people will watch even though the players aren't as good and the events aren't as good and therefore the golf isn't as good and the whole thing is far less interesting. No, I I I, I find it. Uh, more than annoying. It's so obvious as to what it is, just looking for more ways to create revenue to end a season on a Sunday and two 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 Thursdays later you pick the thing up again and call it a new year. It's the only time of the year that the good players get time off because most of the rest of the year is important stuff and isn't wraparound. It's it's real tournaments with real consequences with the ability to create history for yourself and for an event. The wraparound season is a complete non-event. And I don't, I don't know anybody who watches. I don't know anybody who plays golf on Saturday morning and says, gee, I've got to get back home and watch the tournament this afternoon. I've never heard anybody discuss a fall event like ever. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing that they're able to get the kind of money that they're able to get for that product because, well, it's uh it's a product that doesn't have a lot of value to it. But the networks and the golf channel are willing to pay. And so uh who's the PGA tour to say nay? And it gives, you know, the guys who are the most marginal players a chance to get a head start on the good players who aren't going to play for another ninety days until after that wraparound season starts when the good players can start to accumulate points for uh the FedEx Cup and you've got a bunch of guys who've already got a 90 day leg up and therefore you're going to get you know some surprising names some guys who might play good for those 3 months and then you may not hear from them again for the next 9 months but then all of a sudden it's Ryder Cup time or Presidents Cup time and they've burned enough st- stuff in that uh in that shoulder season to be able to uh allow to be called competitive with the better players on tour so i i think uh i think it's too bad for the golf fan and it it doesn't give you a chance to to whet your appetite you know taking two weeks off in october is not exactly taking time off you know it used to be the case that players like you know bobby jones you know who who was a career amateur who didn't have to play in events to earn money he would play golf basically from April through September, and that would be the end of it. And he'd put his clubs away. And in the spring, he would take his clubs out again, and they would play. And the key events then are the same as the key events now. And then, you know, slowly over time, as professionals made their way into the game, and 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 they needed to be able to make money to be able to remain a professional in the game, that the landscape started to change. But you know the the wraparound season is the height of a money grab. I uh, it doesn't give you a chance to ever say, gee, I'm looking forward to golf starting again. It starts two weeks later, and then some guy you never heard of is leading the tournament, and some guys and there's people shooting some crazy low scores because the courses are easier and they put the pins in the middle of the green so that there's more birdies. So it looks like the better players are playing because the scores look better it's it's a, a semi scam <laughs>
0: and i think what we've lost in there right in in that time of year i i you know, we used to we used to call it at least my friends like silly season right you had right. you know skins games and things of that nature sort of fun events that would happen during that pe- you know period of time and we sort of lost it we have the father son challenge which is nice, but we've lost the skins games and, you know, and those sorts of events. And I don't know if we lost them because they, they didn't raise enough money to your point. The revenues weren't as high for, for those sorts of things or just the fact that, you know, the, the folks that at least the ones that I used to love to watch, right. Have have gotten on in years, you know, Mr. Nicholas and Trevino and, and Raymond Floyd and, and, and guys from, from that era have just gotten to the point now where they're in their, you know, mid to late seventies and, and, you know, are no longer you know able to play and those sorts of events. But I missed that time of year. I missed those sorts of events. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how you felt about the Skins games and those sorts of things, but those were things that I looked forward to in Silly Seasons, to your point, not the, oh, by the way, open or invitational, that, you know, to your point, not a lot of the well, players ag- are actually I playing. I agree with
3: that. I, I think that that was it, – it was, it was a very special time because it was just the beginning of what became the current onslaught because what you had was – you know, you had a weekend in 1978 where there happened to be in November no sports on television, basically for a weekend, except an exhibition of four old guys: Tommy Bolt, Art Wall, and Di Vincenzo, and "I'll Die a Happy Man" when I think of the fourth guy. And they played a a a best ball match, and it was a team best ball match. And in the uh, when they went to extra holes. Uh, the Bolt team made four birdies in the five playoff holes, and the other team made five birdies in the five playoff holes. And these guys were all at that time in in their very least in their 60s, but it was really, really popular, and they happened to have gotten the only sports audience that there was on that particular weekend. And a year and a half after that, Arnold Palmer turned 50, and so you had the beginning of the senior tour starting essentially in 1980 when Arnold turned 50 was when the thing really kicked off. But the weekend that did it was the one with Tommy Bolt. And, and then you had a few special events after that, you know, then you, then you did, then you did have the skins game, which I think started in 83. Um, and, uh, you know, and you you had Watson and you had Palmer and you had Nicholas and you had Player. I think played in the first one. You know, and Gary Player and Tom Watson got into a fight because Gary uh, Tom Watson accused Gary Player of cheating on one of the holes on the back nine of moving a a growing and fixed piece of uh, grass and accused him of snipping the grass off to make the shot easier and they went into the bushes and they had a big argument and Watson said I'm not going to take this anymore and, you know and then you had a situation where Trevino made a hole in one on the 17th hole one year uh, for about a hundred and seventy five thousand dollars at the time and his caddy you know, Herman Mitchell went crazy and Trevino was jumping up and down they were special because there were few of them, and the ones that they had were really good. And then, of course, when the tour saw that people would start, what would would continue to watch golf in the off season, the thing slowly began, and we got to where we are today, which is none of them are special. The father-son, I like the father-son, and and that is special, and it's not a pretend golf tournament. With a bunch of also rans who weren't gonna, you know, be on the money list by the end of the calendar year next, and so I really like that. More stuff like that would be, would would be just great and kill some of the other stuff. I, you know, what's now, you know, what what was this shark shootout is, is now a complete nonsense. They, it's not a good field. They're reaching for guys to play in that field. I mean, there, there there's names in that field that you go, how did he get in there? I haven't heard that name in a hundred years. You know, so that has lost its luster, and that has lost its 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 TV audience. And uh, so, if you're gonna you know make it special, you've got to have the best players agreeing to play in something for a couple of days for fun. The money part doesn't matter at all. But seeing also-ran players, you know, numbers 75 through 225 on the PGA Tour, battling it out in the fall, just doesn't make any sense to me. And it also seems to me that the guys who are lower down on the money list have a much worse perception of what it takes from a personality and on-camera point of view to make things more interesting than just your golf shots for the viewer at home. I mean, these guys, you know, look like they're going, you know, to a meeting with a briefcase on Monday morning in New York city. It just, you know, it just looks serious and it doesn't look interesting and it doesn't look fun and they're not fun and the golf isn't fun. And you're not going to see the kind of shots that you're going to see out of the really best players in the world. I mean, close, but not, not quite as good and i mean usually the difference between the guy who's number 100 on the money list and number 1 on the money list is putting the best players are also the best putters but uh i mean even uh um you know it, it, with all the new statistics that are available that you can you can see that you know long straight hitting is still the key to low scoring but you got to be a great putter to be a low scorer so no, I, uh, I'm i sorry that it's gone the way that it has. And it doesn't sound like Jay Monaghan, the new commissioner of the PGA Tour, is going to change that. It sounds like he's okay with with what we call silly season and, uh, and that that may not change. Maybe they'll move some of the events around. Maybe they'll try to do a few things that more attractive like the old skins game. But uh, it sounds like it's going to be business as usual.
0: And Peter, you talk about you know those events looking like they are fun, and um, I went back and I was I was listening to you know some of the interviews that you've done over the course of your career. You you've become very good friends with Gary Player. You've interviewed him numerous times. One of the great privileges of my life has been having yep. you and Gary Player on this show a couple of times. But as, as I was listening to an interview that you did with him, I, be, I believe back in two thousand and eleven, he talked about you know people telling him you know before his rounds in, in a tournament go have fun right and he said that he wasn't able to do that that wasn't fun because he was he was too uptight too anxious going into into rounds of golf and it's interesting to me the the, the dynamics of that because you know I've I've always I've frequently heard Jack Nicklaus talk about it being the exact opposite that you know he you know the fun of a golf tournament for him was getting involved and being in contention and the pressure that it brought and all of that was the fun part of the game for him. It's interesting to me the dynamics and you know the difference between Gary Player and Jack Nicklaus. Obviously, you know, very different people as well. But curious to get your thoughts on you know golf tournaments being fun or or guys being so uptight that they couldn't enjoy the moment.
3: Well, my my understanding in talking to Gary was that. He thrived on the competitive element during the actual playing of the event, and the fun part was the enjoyment of looking back on what you had done competitively, that you weren't actively having fun as you were playing golf. And That's probably true for just about all of them. It's, you know, fun is fun's a tricky word, uh, because it implies a a little bit of a lack of seriousness, which of course is not the case in in big leagues of golf. And I think you know, with with Jack's comment too, I think the I think the thrill for Jack was being in the situation, and then seeing if you could handle the situation, and then looking back on it also and saying, "Gee, that was great fun." I think they're closer. I think it's just the words that we use imply that, you know, that 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 player was never having a good time and he was always gritting his teeth. Um, You know, he was a showman. And, you know, if he hold the chip, he would throw his hat down or raise his arms in the air. You know, he 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 was a pretty savvy on camera guy. But, you know, there was no, you know, hi, hi, Mary, hi, Joe in the in the crowd behind the ropes. And, and that kind of kidding around that fuzzy Zeller used to use or that Lee Trevino used to use just to kind of keep himself relaxed and distracted from the next shot until he had to actually play the next shot. And even Nicholas said that, you know, in between shots, he wasn't really thinking about the next shot. He would let his mind wander and he would go to wherever it went. And then when it was time to, focus in on a shot. Well, then he would go ahead and concentrate on what that shot required. And he would then go to the movies and he would go to the movies backwards. He would see a mental picture of the ball hitting the ground and then rolling towards the cup. Then he would see a movie of the shot flying through the air and then landing where he saw it land in his mind's eye and rolling towards the cup. And then the third movie that he would see would be the one where he made the swing that produced the shot that produced where the ball landed on the ground and rolled towards the hole. So he so he had a process that he would follow on every single shot. And he said he did it every time he ever hit a shot, whether it was in practice or it was in play or it was in the Masters, you know, or in one of the games with the guys on the weekends in, in the fall that. He always went through the same routine, and the competition was fun for him, but I think it was the act of competition that was the thing, and that happened to turn out to be fun for him to do. Golf was his way of having a competitive outlet, and and golf was Gary Player's only way of having a competitive outlet. Jack knew as a young teenager He wanted to to be an athlete. He wanted to to make his mark somewhere. And golf was the vehicle that he ultimately chose. And perhaps he chose the best one for himself. Gary Player had fewer options in terms of number of sports to play. Um, But, you know, he, he, of course, you know, found that he had everything ultimately especially after he started lifting weights in the early 60s that he needed to play with with jack and with arnie and there's no doubt that that was fun for him but i get it it's work and then you enjoy the work because gee now we can look back on it and isn't it fun but i think their competitiveness was very very similar in that way i i Remember Gary telling me a story? They were playing. He was playing with Jack at Carnoustie, where the year that he won there, and they got to around the twelfth or thirteenth hole, and the thing was very tight. And it was a really hard golf course. And uh, and player looked over at Nicholas, with whom he was playing, and said, "What are you doing to me?" And Jack said, "What are you doing? What am I doing to you? What are you doing to me?" You know, and you know, and you have to take that in the best athletic sportsman sort of vein that you know they're both trying to beat each other's brains out realized it but were able to humanize it enough to be able to say well you knock it off i'm trying to win a golf tournament here so that part had that part had to be fun and there's no question that it had to be fun one player would find himself beating those guys i mean he had some pretty heroic celebrations that certainly would be characterized by me as fun during the event. But sure, it's a major, and it's serious, and you take it seriously. But it wasn't life or death either. It just appeared that way sometimes.
0: Peter, looking back over, over your broadcasting career, was there someone you really had a great time interviewing, someone who made you smile or laugh so much that when the interview was over, your cheeks hurt?
3: I really only had one that way, and um, and I would say that was Gene Sarazen. You know, Gene, of course, was the first player to win all four major championships, the career Grand Slam, when he made double eagle the Masters in the final round to get into a playoff and beat Craig Wood in 1935, which was the second playing of the Masters, but it was actually his first playing of the Masters because he had a agreed to do an exhibition tour in South America the year before at the same time that they held the first um, Masters tournament. And, you know, he kind of invented the sandwich, and he kind of didn't, and we used to argue about that. And I used to say to him, the club that you invented in 1932, I said, Bobby Jones used it at the British Open in 1930, so how could he have had it two years earlier than when you invented it? And he said, "Well, that wasn't the same club, and that one was ultimately declared illegal. And the shape of it was this." And I said, "Yeah, but the, I said, but the functionality was basically the same, which was to, to 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 give a rolling bulge to the bottom of the club that would hit the the sand first and help glide the rest of the club through." And we used to have we used to have some fun chats about that, but he. He was a really, really interesting guy. Um, You know, did Shell's Wonderful World of Golf as an announcer. He was a farmer. He was a club maker. Um, He did other announcing on television. He played golf almost until he died at the age of 97. And uh, we did an interview at Chateau Elan, the resort north of Atlanta, in 97 when he was 95. And... No matter what I raised, and I didn't tell him anything I was going to ask him, he gave me the most unbelievable answers to all kinds of stuff. You know, And, and some stuff he even volunteered. He said, you know, when I lived in Harrison, New York, which is about a 45-minute train ride north of New York City, he said, and I used to have to go into the city, he said I would go in at a certain time, he said, because I knew on one of those station stops, Pelham, that the Ziegfeld Folly showgirls would be getting on the train around 2 o'clock in the afternoon to go into New York City for rehearsal and performance. And he said, so I used to try to take the right train so I would catch them. And he said, there was this one blonde that he said wouldn't give me a tumble, wouldn't flirt with me. But I remembered the phrase, wouldn't give me a tumble. And He said, and that was was in the mid-1920s. And he said, and then all of a sudden, 60 years later, he said, somebody walks up to me and says, there's a blonde woman who wants to see you. And he said, a blonde woman who wants to see me. He said, I'm an old man. And they said, well, she wants to see you. And he said, okay. And so he goes over and this woman says to him, "Uh, hello, Gene, I'm wondering if you remember me. And he said, I looked her over and I looked her up and I looked her down and I didn't remember her. And I told her I didn't remember her. And she said, well, I'm the blonde that you used to flirt with on the train tracks in Pelham in the mid-1920s. And I just wanted to introduce myself. My name is Mrs. Bob Hope. (laughs) And And he just did that for an hour. And then at the end of the show when I when I used to get ready for a show, I'm typically the shows were on monday night the the interview shows and so on Monday night when I would get home from a show at nine thirty or ten o'clock, I would just lay out a a yellow legal pad and just put it on my desk and anytime I thought of a question for next Monday's guest, I just wrote it down in no order just 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 wrote them down and then as the weekend came and the list got long, maybe fifty or seventy five questions or just little comments to myself I started to pair the thing down to where it was 20 questions and then I would write them down on a piece of paper and I would stick them in the breast pocket of my sports jacket for the show and occasionally during a station break I would pull the paper out and look at it and see if there was anything I forgot to do or what was I going to do next that I couldn't think of that rarely happened I usually had the show memorized I can only think of and I can't really think of many times that I took it out except this one. And we were up in Atlanta, and usually we did the show in Orlando. And for some reason, I had all my pieces of paper with me. I had like the 75 questions instead of just the 20 questions. And it was like on six or eight pieces of legal pad paper. And I had it all balled up and inside my jacket pocket. And so... We came to the last station break of the show, and I was thinking, is there anything I haven't done here that I want to do? And I went, I'll take a look at my notes. So I pulled out my notes, and I looked through them quickly, and um, I didn't remember seeing anything in particular. And then the camera guy said, you've got 10 seconds before you're back on. And I couldn't get the thing back in my pocket. I couldn't fold it tight enough, I I couldn't get it back, and I was shoving and pushing, and finally I just turned it into a ball and threw it over the head of the cameraman, and then the show started, and Sarazen had been watching me this whole time, and I heard him start laughing, and I heard him start laughing louder, and they started laughing louder, and then when we finally came back air and the, the, the wad of paper had just flown over the cameraman's head, <clears throat> he just threw his head back and, you know, was laughing, you know, full throat, belly laugh, give it all you've got. And that got me laughing. And uh, But that was, it was just something about, you know, you're talking about, you know, one of the first two or three great players of, you know, he and, and, and Hagan and Bobby Jones, who was also born in 1902. And uh, Hagen was ten years older than the other two, and uh, you know you're just talking about one of the great names in the history of golf, and that you just got to him on such a basic, primal level that you know anybody in his position might have laughed, and it didn't matter that he was the world famous Gene Sars, and it could have been Joe Schmoe from next door. So that 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 particular moment made me laugh, but the whole show just lit me up because. The things that he remembered, and the things that he said, and the shots that he described, and you know, were in such incredible detail. And again, he's 95 at the time. And after the show, I talked to his family, and they said it was his best memory night maybe in 20 years, and that he had studied up, and he had gotten ready. And a couple of years later, before the 99 Ryder Cup. About a month before, I went up to do a thing in Boston. The thing had been played. That was, of course, the one at the country club with the great putt by Justin Leonard that would still be going if it hadn't hit the flag stick And they wanted to have a special hookup with Gene Sarazen to talk about the early days of the Ryder Cup. So Gene studied, and uh, this was in April And I flew up to Boston, and there were a lot of people, maybe a 1,000 people in the room, and Tony Jacklin was there, and a few other people, and I interviewed Tony, and we did some other stuff. And then it was time to talk to Gene, who was at home in Florida, and we were just going to have him hooked up on the telephone. They couldn't get the thing hooked up properly. They had him on the phone. He was ready to go. We were ready to go up front on the dais. And they could never get the connection from him to me, so that I could talk to him and talk to the audience. And uh, it was uh, very upsetting. I mean, you know, we didn't let our, our the degree of our upset show, but it was it was it was it was definitely uh, uh, a very unattractive moment. And and I spoke to uh, his daughter right afterwards and she said that he was just so upset, and he had studied the Ryder Cup from 1927 and 1929, that they had made notes for him and stuff about Walter Hagen, because Hagen was the captain of most of the early teams, maybe six or eight times he was the captain, and of course they won them all and had all the good players, and, and Europe wasn't part of the uh, the team at that point. And, uh, and I never got to speak to Gene again, and he died the next month. And, uh, but that was, uh, that was, that was my last memory of him was that we were unsuccessful in entertaining people. And, you know, his family told me how hurt and upset he was that it wasn't able to have been worked out. But all of my, uh, interactions with him, uh, were terrific and it was great to get him to talk about, uh, Bobby Jones. And he said Jones would never have made it as a pro with his swing. He was still je- jealous of Jones and they uh, acknowledge that Jones and Hagen both passed him by in terms of major championships and notoriety. Uh but he was uh, he was a great character. It's it's interesting that golf at its at its top echelon has produced so many interesting people, um, in addition to their fascinating golf. I mean, you know, Ty Ty Tiger's a, a great example. He's fascinating for unusual reasons in a lot of ways for the things that he doesn't say or the things that he says that are curious or the things that he says that you know are nonsense and you know when he abbreviates all those words but it made him no less fascinating I mean you know to watch Tiger on television for example in between shots just standing around was great television just just watching him standing there holding the club or looking around or making little half practice swings i mean there was nothing more fascinating when he was playing his best than just watching him or just like watching a you know a great great actor on the screen you know a lot of times you can't take your eyes off off the 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 one that's making the bigger impression on you even if he or she isn't the one speaking at that particular moment you're just looking at their reaction and so, uh, you know, we've been blessed in that we've had so many fascinating characters. I mean, Jack Nicholas, you know, maybe the smartest, you know, of all of the great players and maybe the greatest of all of the great players. And that makes for a pretty winning combination.
0: Peter, just a couple of more before we let you go. And speaking of Tiger Woods, wanted to get your expectations for Tiger this season.
3: I don't know it's a pretty close it's a pretty close and tough call I think the the good news is he appears to be playing golf without pain you know, he played 72 holes he made two or three very hard swings that you know only he swings that violently when when a club is swung as violently as as he can do it and there were a couple of those swings and they did not appear to cause any discomfort and he didn't appear to limp, and he didn't grab his back, and he didn't grab his wrist, and he didn't flinch or wince. So I was really encouraged, and from a physical point of view, it looked like his body was prepared to play, in this case, four rounds of golf in a week, walking on consecutive days. You know, it has nothing to do with how, how well will it hold up over two months, and what kind of stress can it or can it not take, but that was extremely encouraging that he was able to walk the course like all the other guys. It was also extremely encouraging that his good golf for those four days was as good as the golf of the guys who ended up being near the top of the leaderboard that he was essentially able to hit the, the, the professional golf shots that the best professionals can hit. You know, he could hit it. left to right and right to left and high and low he pick pick his curvature. He was able to hit, you know, what those guys call the nine shots, you know, high fade, low fade, medium fade, and the same thing for straight and left balls, so you get to nine shots. And he was able to successfully do that. And that was really encouraging. So we know that he we know that he's capable of playing again and it wasn't some manufactured game where he was just piddling it out there and having to hit two extra clubs into the greens. His length was fine. His con- t- t- distance control was good. His trajectory control was good. And he had more birdies than anybody else at 24 birdies. So he birdied a third of the holes, which was fantastic. So his good golf was basically as good as the golf as the top five or seven players or only what 17 guys in the field. But they they were as good as the top five or seven guys, his good play. But his bad play was the worst in the field, and by quite a margin. He was 24 under on his birdies, but he was 20 over on the holes where, on, on the remaining two thirds of the holes of the golf tournament. So that's a lot of over, that's a lot of doubles, that's a lot of pulled shots. That's a couple of missed chips, it's a couple of bunker shots. His putting seemed to be pretty good actually. But, you know, that's a lot of mistakes to have to get off of your card. And everybody wants to blame it on uh well he hasn't had the reps, he hasn't been playing. But I don't I don't necessarily buy that. Either you're hitting it or you're not hitting it. I mean Jack Nicholas at the most played fifteen times a year and he didn't like have to work his way into things. He was he'd come out and he'd be competitive in the first tournament. He'd be competitive in the last tournament. Now I know, you know, in Jack's case he never had to take those kind of breaks the Tigers take in the last few years and Tiger just went fifteen months without playing in advance. So maybe there's a kind of rust that the players have from not playing in a while. But that but he was playing at home and he was playing every day and there's no reason you can't follow a par with a par. You don't have to all of a sudden follow a par with a double bogey because you're slightly rusty. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a swing question. That's a, that's a confidence question. That's a technique question, you know, and all, and those are the things that are going to have to be answered because his bad golf right now is much too bad. Just based on one tournament now, remember but it's much too bad to be able to say, oh, well, he's going to be a dominant player again this year and he's going to win major championships this year. I don't think there was anything to evidence that he would win tournaments or championships. I think there was a lot of evidence that he could be competitive. But, you know, you, you can't make a lot of mistakes and win golf tournaments these days. There's a lot of good young players, none of whom are as good None of whom will be as good. None of whom are as consistent as Tiger was. Woods was at his best, so he doesn't have to beat a young Tiger Woods. Roy McIlroy's not as good as Tiger either. Is Jordan Speed. None of those guys. Not even in the same. Not even in the same planet are those guys. I mean, you know, Tiger went seven years without missing a cut, 142, 144 in a row. It's Seven years without missing a cut you know those guys go 15 minutes and miss a cut so you know comparing you know the tiger that we knew to the one that we'd like to see again is a tough comparison i mean you know it's it's been several years since he's played that kind of golf and he's 41 and it looks like he wants it looks like his desire is there his body's in shape he's got himself looking like he's healthy but I don't know if he can summon up the
2: consistency
3: that he once had. The thing that made Tiger among others greater than everybody else was he could do it every single week. He could do it every single week. He would show up. There was no, you know, that there's your 144, you know, no missed cuts in a row because he showed up every single week, ready to play, showed up every week, ready to be competitive. You know, at one point in the, Around 05 to 08, he won 45% of the tournaments that he played in. 45% of the tournaments that he played in, winning 9 out of 12. And so he was more consistent than anybody else, and his golf was better than anybody else. So if you're more consistent and you're better, you're going to win all the time, and that's what he did. I don't expect that we'll ever see anything like that from him again. If he were to win a tournament this year, I would think it would be an an amazing thing. I think making cuts would be an amazing thing. I just don't know that he can stitch together the things mentally that keep you from making the mistakes of being 20 over par on the holes where he didn't make birdies as he did a couple of weeks ago. Now, maybe that's a little harsh because it was just the one tournament and we got to give him a break and let him come back and get used to the thing, but... I don't think there's anything to get used to either. He's going to play good or he's not going to play good. And his scores said, I'm not quite ready yet.
0: Peter, when we flip the calendar, right, most golf fans, we we immediately start looking ahead to the Masters. This year, Jordan Spieth, right, is going to have to go there and face his demons, particularly when he gets to the 12th hole. And if he happens to be in contention on Sunday, when he gets to the 12th hole, even that much more. Now, if you look back in time, right, you know, I mean, Arnold Palmer won the Masters in 60, had the meltdown on 18 in 61 to hand the tournament to Gary Player, but then came back and won it again in 62. Do you think we, we could see something like that from Jordan Spieth, or do you think that memory is going to linger with him?
3: Oh, I don't think that means anything really. I, I, you know, He's, gonna, he's there's going to be other holes at other tournaments he's going to come to and he's going to go, yeah, I handled this one real well last time. I think that's over. I, I think, you know, he made the classic mistake. I mean, you know, Jack Nicklaus was the most vocal about it for years. He said no matter where the pin is, no matter where the pin is on number 12, you aim over the exact center of the bunker. And he said, and for sure if the pin is on the right, you never, ever think about going for the pin on the right. It's not a playable shot. And Lee Trevino said, if you hit it in the water on your first shot, do not go down to the drop zone. Just reload and replay the shot that you intended to play the first time. If you go down to a drop area, you're playing a downhill lie off a really tight fairway to a slightly uphill shot on a really fast, shallow green which is a much harder shot than the tee shot is originally the 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 pitch is harder and um I'm I'm sure that he's well digested that apparently he just played Augusta National a couple of times in December and he made a pair of twos on number 12 and he said okay I've exercised my demons there it's all better now but he hasn't exercised his demons there two two twos playing with your friends in December is not the same as playing with uh, Henrik Stenson and Phil Mickelson in April. And uh, he'll remember that the next time he goes. But, you know, it's it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where he's just going to have to hit the shot that he knows that he's capable of at the very last second. You know, he just decided halfway down his downswing like some of us do, oh, maybe I'll just cut this a little bit. And he went for the cut shot, and he had half a club too little in his hand and knocked it into the water. I don't think he'll make that mistake again physically, and I don't think he'll make that mistake again mentally, and I think that he'll be well aware that he has a propensity to occasionally do that, but I think that we'll see four balls over the dead center of the bunker. I, I, I I don't think that that's an issue and nor do I necessarily expect him to be in a position to to have a shot in a number 12 with a with a, a one or two shot lead coming into the last few holes of the golf tournament. You know, there there isn't a one best player right now. There's a bunch of really good guys. I mean, Dustin Johnson went three times including a major, you know, and people were acting like it's, you know, he's the second coming. Tiger used to do that, and it was a bad year. I mean, when Tiger, you know, won in tournaments in 2013 the last year he could play decent golf he won five times i mean he had years where he won 10 times he had years where he won three majors and six other events that's a season but you know when you call the best player in the game the guy won three times it used to be if the guy won three times he was one of the best players in the world you know in, in 95 greg norman won three times in 16 starts i think and that was the most anybody won they're saying, oh, my God, what an unbelievable year, which included no major championships, by the way. So, you know, I, I think our expectations have, have, have dropped a little bit since Tiger has dropped off the scene a little bit. And, and what a great year really is. Three times is a really, really good year, makes you one of the best players. Five times is what you call a year.
0: Peter, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can go back and listen to some of the great interviews that you've done and then obviously follow you on social media as well. Well, I've been I've been doing a little
3: Facebooking lately. I I've been starting to put down some of the interesting things that, that have occurred to me as particularly as I see people see people starting to pass away. I Peggy Kirkbell, you know, is one of the founders of the LPGA and She just uh, passed away a few weeks ago at the age of 95, and the first time I played with her at Pine Needles in Pinehurst, I knew she was there, and I was playing with some friends, and she came out onto the golf course, and she was maybe 70-something, and she hit the first approach shot to about 10 feet and made the putt and then drove her cart directly from the front of the green, right through the middle of the green, over the green, to the next tee. And, and we all looked at each other like, oh, boy. So then the next hole, she makes a, an eagle by hitting a two-wood. A two-wood. I haven't seen a two-wood in a long time. She had a two-wood, and she hit a she hit a draw with a two-wood to like 10 feet, makes the putt for eagle three. So now she's gone birdie-eagles, like in the middle of the golf course. She gets in the cart in front of the in front of the green, drives right over the exact center of the green to the next tee. We go to the next hole. She hits it so close to the hole on her approach shot that we couldn't ask her to putt. I mean, there wasn't anything like six inches, seven inches, something like that. And uh, she picked up her ball, got in the cart, waved to say goodbye, started to drive over the center of the green again. <laughs> Stopped the cart, turned around and said, don't worry, fellas, I own the golf course.
0: <laughs>
3: and uh, so I'm trying to put some of those little remembrances down on Facebook lately and uh, just 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 keep communicating a little bit with the people who might have any interest in what I have to say. But um, uh Working on a couple of things, perhaps the next time that we talk, I'll have a couple of things in action that might be interesting enough for us to kick around, but uh nothing at the moment just uh you know really appreciate the opportunity to come on to a show like yours and talk about stuff and have great memories uh brought back to life and uh I've always appreciated your interest in me, and I appreciate your interest in. In your audience and in the homework that you do, so it's always a great thrill to to, to be on with you, and I'm and I'm very very appreciative.
0: Well, wow, I appreciate that very much, Peter. And I, I posted on on our website, nextonthet.net, five things that I was hoping we would see in, in the 2017 golf year. One was Jordan Spieth winning the Masters. The other was Phil. Menten. One of the others was Phil Mickelson getting back in the winner's circle, hopefully, Adam a major. Dave Stockton getting into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Ben Wright getting the opportunity to broadcast one more major, and the the other thing was Peter Kessler returning to radio or TV. I really hope someone does the smart thing by getting you back, whether it's on radio or on TV, because uh, we
3: need you. Thanks. Well, I I happen to have seen that, and I'm sure you saw that I I either commented or hit like, and uh, I was very appreciative of that. So thank you very much. That was a very sweet thing to do.
0: Peter, there's, there's no better way for me to spend a Saturday morning than to getting the privilege to listen to you share your stories and your insights. No matter how many times I get to do it, it's, it's never enough. I can't thank you enough for continuing to be a part of the show. No one, like I say, no one has ever done it better or worth more class than, than, than you have over the course of your career. Thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to, uh, to be a part of the show again.
3: Well, let's keep it going, buddy. You're the best.
0: Thank you, Peter. Happy New Year to you and your family. I look forward to the next time I get the opportunity to have you on the show.
3: Goes both ways, my friend. All good things.
0: All right. I appreciate it, Peter. Take care. I'll catch up with you soon. That is Peter Kessler, the voice of golf, and uh, I mean it sincerely when I say it. And I've had, you know, the privilege of having Peter on the show a number of times, but no one has ever done it as well, better, and with more class. I'm not talking about interviewing or hosting a show, then Peter Kessler has done it. I'm very grateful to Peter, and hopefully we get the opportunity to have him back on the show. And like he said, hopefully next time uh, someone has done, like I say, someone has done the right thing and the smart thing by giving Peter Kessler a mic, whether it's uh, on the radio or on television. Uh, Hopefully we get that news real soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T, but before we do, we'd like to continue to remind you about the great things that our friend Jim Estes, PGA Pro, right, and uh, his great folks have done over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Here's a word from our friend Jim.
2: The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. or if you'd like to learn more about the salute military golf association and find a chapter closest to you visit our website at smga.org we've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery the salute military golf association empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time visit smga.org that's smga.org
0: yeah jim and his friends are doing so so great And so many great things there at the Salute Military Golf Association. I hope you'll go online and find out how you can get involved. And, again, their site is smga.org. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks to uh, John Decker and Peter Kessler for making today's show so much fun for me to be a part of. I hope you enjoyed our time as well. Please uh, also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari, our announcer, Joe Lagianusa. You know that show airs live every Thursday night from 8, 10, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio and on the Armed Forces Radio Network as well. That show like this one, also available as a free podcast on Podbean. Again, thanks to those folks for doing great things. If you're looking for a site, right, either online or a mobile app, where you can stream the best In podcasting across all genres. Please go check them out online, podbean.com. You can also find this show on Thursday Night Tailgate available to stream on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, SoundCloud. We are all over the net. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined every single week by five NFL legends sharing their stories from their playing days and their insights into today's game as well. We also highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our segment, The Spotlight on the Positive. So I hope you'll check out that as well. Both shows available. You can find us on, uh, on social, uh, social media, on Facebook, right? We've got the show pages on, uh, on Facebook. Please give us a like. That's important to us as well. You can find this show online. Our, our website is nextonthet.net or thursdaynighttailgate.com. So you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free from either of those sites as well. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to the show. We know you've got a lot of shows that are, that are out there that you have the opportunity to stream. We are so appreciative that Next on the Tee is one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.
2: You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors And media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love. From the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.